Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Patrick Eddington. And joining us today is Joshua Childress. He's a former Border Patrol agent. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Thanks for having me. How'd you end up working for the Border Patrol? In 2010, I had I was on a military training exercise with the National Guard, and uh, one of the guys that was attached to my platoon was a Border Patrol agent, and I was kind of floundering in college, not really sure what I wanted to continue studying. And he said, hey, we're hiring. Um, might be something you like doing. We get to go, you know, they give us guns. We get to go chase people through the desert. It's exciting, fun. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, you know, I have a background in the military. So I filled out the application online and uh, just kind of forgot about it. And then uh, it's a really lengthy process. You know, you you hear nothing for six, eight months, and then they call you and, hey, go do this. You know, go do a physical. Go do, you know, talk to this investigator. So um, after about a year and a half, uh, I finally got a job offer, and I thought, well, it pays better than uh, going into more student loan debt. So <laughs> I took the job and uh, went to the Border Patrol Academy in Artesia, New Mexico in 2011. So what what sort of stuff like if you're so you're at the you go through that and then you start on the job. What kind of stuff are you doing? The Academy's almost six months long. Uh, and then after you complete the Academy, there's about four months of on the job training. So you're not really cut loose to, to go do do work yet. You're shadowed by a uh, field training officer. And so you're kind of just, you're on a leash, but you're, you're getting out there in the, in the actual environment and seeing how things go. Um, but you're under pretty tight supervision for that first year. And then after a year, you're essentially, you know, you know, your area and you're essentially let loose to go enforce the laws. So uh, a typical day we would, you know, wherever you're assigned to go patrol, you know, if it's not on the border, it's near the border, and you have these roads that you patrol, and you essentially look for footprints. I mean, that's your your bread and butter is you're, you're looking for either footprints or, you know, sign of a vehicle entry uh, into the country. And then if you find something like that, you just track it like a kind of like a hunter. And then you just arrest the people as you find them, put yeah. them in detention. Yeah, once you catch, you know, if you, if you detect foot sign and you, you track it. Uh, once you catch up to them, you it's it's pretty informal, but I mean the official thing is you're supposed to establish alienage. So you you know for a gringo like me, you know my broken Spanish, I'm able to ask you know uh, what country their citizenship is, and once we establish alienage, then you place them under arrest, take them back to the station, and set them up for processing. What? What kind of people are you finding out there? I mean, you listen to the <clears throat> rhetoric coming from our president, and it's almost entirely rapists and MS-13 members and MS-13 members who are rapists. Um, is that – how accurate is that? Um, so when I first hit the ground running, so you're, when I first got out of probationary status and was you know an official agent at that point – and assigned to where? What sector? The Yuma, Arizona, uh, Yuma Station uh, of Yuma Sector. So we're right there on the 
southwest corner of the state of Arizona, um, patrolling anywhere from the Imperial Sand Dunes in California to the Gila Mountains over by the Agua Prieta Wildlife Refuge. So there's a little bit of a a disconnect between who we're catch- about who we're catching. So when I started out, it, everybody's talking about, you know, we're out there, we're catching bad guys, we're you know, these are lawbreakers and and uh so anytime somebody was caught and they'd been caught before and say they, you know, killed somebody in a drunk driving accident or or, you know, manslaughter or rape or, you know, assault with a deadly weapon. These are fairly common things. Um, well, when we would find somebody like that, boy, it was talk of a town. I mean, in muster, you have a daily briefing. Well, you know, so-and-so caught this guy last night and he's a real dirtbag. And so those are the ones that are spotlighted. So as a new agent, you're, I'm kind of thinking, wow, we're doing a great thing. We're keeping all these these bad guys out of the country. But uh, and things were pretty slow when I first got there, so I didn't have a whole a whole lot. It wasn't like I was just rounding up people every day. I mean, there would be several days or you know weeks sometimes that I wouldn't catch anybody. So I kind of just fell into this. Well, that's that's who we're getting. But the you know as time went on, I'd catch people and they would just be like, I mean, I used to work construction before I I uh, worked in the border patrol, so. You know, there was a fair amount of uh, uh, laborers that I worked with that <laughs> these guys that I was catching just seemed to look like those guys. They weren't, you know, they were ashamed that they were caught. They weren't like, you know, they didn't fight back. Not to say that there was nobody ever fought back, but most of these guys were just like, yeah, you got me, you know. But they didn't they didn't seem dangerous. And then we'd take them back and they didn't have any criminal history or they didn't have anything like that. So it it started, you know, that facade of, oh, we're going out and getting the bad guys. That started to kind of fade away after a couple of years. In that six months of training, mm-hmm. so one of the things that we, we see videos, you can find videos all over YouTube of people getting stopped, recording their stops with Border Patrol. Um, and and we, as, you know, like our criminal justice people talk about, like, these these are your rights in these situations and that these people routinely, you know, in these in these videos, like, Routinely are, am I being detained? Well, you're not really being detained, but I'm not going to let you go. Like there, uh, how much of that, like, I guess how much training in the the constitutional rights, the legal issues do you get as a border patrol agent? And so how much of that behavior, um, to the extent that that behavior is representative, is is the result of them not knowing the the constitutional rights of the people that they're stopping or just them kind of not caring? And we should make a distinction here between the, the internal checkpoints that CBP runs, which essentially are set up on usually major roads, although not entirely, and then essentially the other kind of roving patrolling, essentially, that you all engage in. And that, that's and the roving patrolling is pretty much what you did, right, when you were out there? Right. We uh, Our sector had a checkpoint, but we didn't man it at, our, at Yuma Station. That was the, the next station over. Um, so as far as the, uh, training at the academy, we had a, a course – it was uh, several weeks in length, but it was taught by a, a lawyer called Applied Authorities. So we essentially went through the uh, Fuerte and all the big, the big uh, Supreme Court cases uh, surrounding Fourth Amendment and seizure and and um, things like that. 
And so we were given training. And I was actually, you know, I, w- I was fairly libertarian-minded going into the Border Patrol. So hearing that they put a, a pretty good emphasis on working within the confines of the of the Fourth Amendment protections was um, kind of gave me a warm fuzzy that made me feel good that that was at least a focus. At the same time, they pointed out that there's absolutely nothing wrong with assuming that the public doesn't have any idea what their rights are and <laughs> working from that perspective. So you're doing this. Um, did it – I mean you'd come in with a kind of conception of what the border looked like presumably. I mean because you lived in the United States and heard of the arguments about immigration and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, did it – aside from – I mean the, the people the people you're meeting look more like construction workers than the um, criminals that were high profile. Like did it match your expectations or or did it – you know, you had certain views on immigration going in. Were those views kind of confirmed or pushed back on? So I think in the beginning it was confirmed. So the, at the academy, we learn immigration law, naturalization law, and we learn all the kind of the the pathways in. And so for immigration law, there you know, there's a a, a ton of visa categories. So on paper, it looks like man, there's all these ways to come in the right way and and uh, do it legally and why doesn't why don't these people just do it? So going out and, and actually performing the work, I was coming at it from that perspective. But you know, kind of going out and doing a little bit of research on my own and then you know hearing from other people that no, that's that's not actually the case. That uh, the, most of those pathways just aren't open. You know, whether it be. I mean, one barrier to entry is is that not everybody that is coming across looking for work is even necessarily uh, able to read and write that well. So how are you going to fill out tons of government forms without that ability, for one? And for the, the major thing is that there's just – there's national caps on, on everybody and the same caps apply to Mexico and Guatemala as they do to somewhere in the Netherlands where there's really no need for immigration from the Netherlands. And and this issue of caps and and numerical limits and all the rest of that, was that discussed in, in, in the six months that you were there at the academy and training oh, and all the rest of God, that? God never. Yeah. Never. So, no. So, no, so that's, nothing. no, so there you know, there's that uh kind of echo chamber effect of well, we're gonna teach you all of the the reasons why what these people are doing is really bad and there's they should just do it this right way. But you come you know, if you start to look around a little bit, you start to find out that that, that right way just doesn't exist, at least not in, 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 in any realistic way. And when you spoke earlier about kind of the Fourth Amendment framing, um, this idea that there is essentially a way to kind of convince people that they really, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I got the impression that that, that at the academy they were trying to get you guys to basically think that yeah, the Fourth Amendment is great and there's this theory of law essentially, but most people are going to be willing to go along with this and you guys should be aggressive in asserting your authority. Was that kind of the the mentality essentially that was conveyed to folks in the class? Yeah, I mean, you know, the just they said, well, always, no matter what you're doing, ask for consent to search because they'll probably give it to you. And so, you know, probably most people don't think that 
well, I've got nothing to hide. But you know, it's it's just and the the other thing that it didn't didn't really dawn on me then, but later on, Miranda writes like explicitly say they can and will be used against you. There's no point in the Miranda rights where they say, well, but if it turns out you weren't doing anything wrong, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt and stick up for you. No, it says will be used against you. So there's, I mean, just my message to the public, like there's no good reason to talk to law enforcement. (laughs) (laughs) Were you there during the child separation stuff? Yes, yes. Um, And that actually... Really, the influx of the the families and and children coming started in in about 2014. So um, that was under the Obama administration, and during that time, really the only time that we separated families uh, was if, for one, if we you know if we established that the child was traveling with somebody other than their parents, so you can't. It's not considered a family if it's a, a brother or an uncle or something like that. So that's it has to be a parent. Um, also, if the parent had previously been removed or deported, or if they were, uh, you know, some sort of criminal alien that you know they had a, a criminal past already, and it was deemed that the parent was a, a danger to the child of some sort. Um, so those were the 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 grounds for separation under the Obama administration. And then uh, as I was on my way out, uh, zero tolerance from the Trump administration was put into into a place. And it was very short-lived, but it was ugly while I was there. What did your colleagues think of that? What was the reaction from inside to that, that change in policy? Probably best described as a lot of shoulder shrugging. Like nobody really thought it was a good idea, but it was like uh, – you know, let's see if it works. Like they, their their main focus was there was a a flood of people coming in. But Yuma was, I think, the second um, the second busiest for family units and and unaccompanied minors, second to uh, the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. So we were just inundated with this new thing that we were not used to. Um, so I think some people kind of thought, well, this is a little bit cruel, but if it works, it works. Um, but you know, when it, when it went away, everybody was like, yeah, we were pretty sure that wasn't going to work. How did you then, the, the process of, I mean, you go in and so it sounds like there were some things that were different or maybe a little bit, you know, you weren't super happy with, but, but you went in by and large agreeing with the mission and thinking this was a valuable thing and that this is what you wanted to do. How did that start to change? So I would say probably around 2016. So I'd been in – I'd been doing the work for about four years. I'd been in for about five at that point. Um, honestly, it, it it started out as a just a gut reaction, like a gut level instinct where I still kind of enjoyed the chase. Like that was – it was – it, it's. I mean, it sounds a little cruel now, but like it was fun. I mean, you have to really use your your critical reasoning skills and in your deduction, and because the you know they'll they'll try tricky things. They'll try walking backwards, or they'll try right. you know stepping on places where they don't think you'll be able to pick up their print. So it was. I mean, the chase was fun, but then the apprehension stopped being fun. It's because because j- just the majority of the time it was some guy who I totally 
understood where he was coming from. Like he just wants to come work. He just wants something better for himself or his family, or he wants to come and reunite with a family or whatever. I mean, that was that was really the majority of what I saw. And it just didn't feel good to be, you know, putting my hands on somebody like that, taking away their freedom and putting them in a, you know, in the back of my truck to take them back to, to lock them up somewhere else. Like that just didn't. So it started as a gut reaction. And do you think it kind of coincided with your becoming a father too? Yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I became a father in 2013 and, um, yeah, it's having kids just, you know, I was a soldier before and it's really easy to look at <clears throat> others as enemies or, you know, opponents or, you know, something else. But man, having kids, it really equalizes things. And you're like, man, everybody starts out here in this mm. helpless state and mm -hmm. everybody's just a person. And it sounds kind of, you know, saying it now, it sounds foolish, but it's like, yeah, we're dealing with people. These aren't, you know, you can give them all the titles you want, immigrant, car caravan or you know, alien or whatever, you can call them anything you want, but they're, they're people. They're absolutely just people. And people, you know, people try to do what's best for themselves. And that's what these guys are doing. And so then, so you started getting this sense, but how did you get from that growing dissatisfaction or distaste for it to eventually deciding to leave? Because that's a big step to quit your job and your career. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, my my favorite thing to do while patrolling the border was uh, audio books and podcasts. Um, and uh, I've I've been libertarian minded for the most part, um, as long as as long as I can remember. But I always had these carve out for like our foreign policy and our immigration policy because you know those were my those were the things that I knew. And um, so I, I I carved them out in my mind and I thought, man, I don't know why libertarians have this big problem with this these things, you know. <laughs> they're they're we just gotta enforce these laws or we just gotta protect the country and this stuff. So but I, I wanted to understand it better. So I started, you know, moving my podcast listening from kind of entertainment driven where I was just listening to funny stuff and and you know, interviews with entertaining people. Uh, and I started listening to more libertarian-based stuff and listening to more... So shows with really unentertaining people. <laughs> <laughs> entertaining in a different way, I guess. But uh, yeah, I mean, more more cerebral, more idea-driven. And um, I guess I just started challenging myself. And uh, um, so Th Thad Russell, his un unregistered podcast was, I think, really instrumental in challenging what I saw as norms. And it's, uh, I mean, it's an excellent podcast if you want to, if you're, if you like being uncomfortable with uh, um, things that you kind of hold to be true, that's a good one to listen to. Um, I did bump into the the Free Thoughts podcast from time to time and the Reason podcast as well. Um, I just started going all everywhere and trying to figure out well, what is it about this immigration thing that that the, these libertarians have such a problem with. So I ended up going to one of Thad Russell's um, weekend events, and I, I got you know I got an opportunity to talk to him, and I was like, 
I don't get this open borders thing. Like, how the hell does that work? How does it? I don't get it. He's like, well, I support it, but I'm not the expert. So go check out. If you're really interested, go check out Brian Kaplan. So I went back to work that next day and downloaded <laughs> a bunch of Brian Kaplan podcasts and, and YouTube videos. And I'm sitting in my truck at work on the border, <laughs> on you know, near the Colorado River and listening to Brian Kaplan. I'm like, oh, this explains all those gut reactions. Like, this is this thing that I'm doing is a little bit ugly. <laughs> um, wow. So, you know, it, it was something inside of me told me like this, this thing that you're doing isn't, isn't, isn't right. But it did take, you know, a little bit of soul searching, a little bit of, and, you know, a little bit of economic, economic argument to really push it over the edge. And so that would have been, let's see, that probably would have been, mid 2017. So I still did, I didn't quit until August 2018. So I had realized, well, I I don't like what I'm doing, but at the same time I had bought a house, I had a mortgage payment, I had you know twin toddler boys to take care of. I'd started this whole life basically built around this career, thinking that I was going to be there forever, retire and live happily ever after. So there in mid mid 2017 I it really hit me like I can't keep doing this. But um what the hell else am I going to do? So uh I let my wife in on the secret and let her know that this which is you know kind of a shock but she was supportive after she realized you know after I explained to her why I didn't want to keep doing this. Um what what to the extent that you feel comfortable what what was her initial reaction when you said, you know, I've just, I've really been you know, kind of tortured by this. I've been thinking about this for a long time and I'm just like, really, I don't think I can keep doing this. How, how did it, how did that all go down? I think I've, I just started with hey, hey, sweetie, I don't, I don't think I can keep doing this. And I just started <laughs> with that because, and she was, I mean, it was like confusion, like, yeah. She, I hadn't really been talking to her about any any of my doubts or anything like because I was as I was confused by them too, um, so I hadn't really been you know talking with this whole time I've been going through this this catharsis if you will, it's been inside my head. So this was pretty much the first she'd been hearing about it, um, and once I explained that you know it just seemed like it was wrong and that you know treating people this way and being a part of this, she's like yeah. To be honest, it always kind of bugged me the way that you talked about your work and the way that you, you know, the way that you portrayed these people as, you know, bad guys and this and that. I was like, oh, well, <laughs> thanks for, I guess, sitting on it this whole time. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad. So she was she was supportive and she was. Um, uh, yeah, it was definitely a shock as far as financially goes. And then to, I don't know if we want to go into this, but so jumping forward to. 2018, uh, my wife worked for Backpage.com. Um, in March of 2018, I had decided, you know, I'm done. We're we're we were just kind of getting the logistics together of okay, can can she go? You know, because she was she was able to work remotely for her work. So we thought, well, we can rely on her income for now, and uh, I'll figure it out along the way. 
Well, in March, she I'm getting ready for work, and uh, I worked evenings, so I was fixing fixing my meals for the night. She comes in and says, um, "The FBI just raided the Dallas office," and I was like, <laughs> uh, "Are they coming here?" <laughs> she said, "That's what I'm trying to figure out." So. I called into work and said, eh, family emergency, I, I'm going to be late at least. I may need to stay home. And um, she talked to her lawyer and she wasn't indicted or on the indicted list. So we thought pretty pretty sure that, you know, they weren't coming. And so we didn't have anything to worry about. Um, so I ended up going to work. And then within a week, the FBI had seized Backpage and she was out of a job. So this this plan that we had in place that we were going to rely on her income just blew out the window. Um, so I had I had been dragging my feet about quitting because I was just like, you know, I liked the guys that I worked with generally. And I, God, the money was great. The benefits were great. And retirement would have been great. And, um, now, and now you had to drag your feet a little bit. <laughs> Well, I was right. glad that I did drag my feet because yeah. then at least we still had one income yeah. for now. Right. Um, so eventually, uh, my kids were getting to, to be of school age and we didn't want to kind of involve them in our, my, my decision making or, you know, the, my choices. So, uh, she decided to take the boys and move back to the Phoenix area, um, so she could get them set up in school. And that was that was about when my uh, feet dragging stopped because I was, you know, I, I I I didn't want to be doing the work anymore. But you know, it was finally when my my family was gone, and they're like, "Hey, we're 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 going to go start this life. When are you, are you going to come join us?" So, um, yeah, in August, I finally uh, finally walked in, and it wasn't even you know, it wasn't even at the beginning because you usually start the shift off pretty pretty busy. And then about halfway through the shift, I walked in to, to see my supervisor and I said, Hey, how, how do you, uh, how do you resign? What do you know? What do I need to do? He's like, I don't know. Nobody really quits. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, can you, can you find that out for me? Cause he's like, what's up? I was like, I just, uh, not really into it anymore. Just kind of left it vague, <laughs> and I uh, said, "Okay, well, I'll, I'll let you know what I find out." And then by the end of the by the end of the shift, by about midnight, I got a phone call, and it was a higher supervisor, and he said, "What the hell's going on? What's what is this?" I said, "Ah, same thing. Just uh, I've kind of changed my mind. I'm not not into it anymore." He's like, "Well, how soon do you want to go?" I said, "Sooner, the sooner the better." And uh, that next day, I turned everything in, out processed. I mean, so you kept it vague with your reasons. You kept vague with your your supervisor and the higher up supervisor. But did you discuss this your reasons with any of your colleagues? Not terribly explicitly. Now, I would uh, I like kind of making people figure things out for themselves. I would make comments kind of here and there about, well, this you know this doesn't really make any sense. Well, why are we doing this? Oh, because we've always done it this way. That, <laughs> you know, I, I, so I would take these little pot shots at at, at what we were doing and and. Just kind of see what you know, see what people's reactions were. But no, I didn't really. I mean, up until right at the very end, I just kind of kept it to myself. We have talked on free thoughts before. We've done a handful of episodes on <clears throat> question of state authority and the role of the citizen, and you know, when when is it permissible for a citizen or obligatory for a citizen to disobey, you know 
government agent, a a law regulation, and so on. Um, but but it's always from I mean, it's from that the perspective of the citizen being confronted by someone like you were, mm-hmm. and do I you know how do I respond to that? Um, but you, I mean, have your story is from from the other side of it as someone who's being paid to execute the laws of the land. Um, and so the, the, I'm curious your thoughts on kind of the moral calculus of that because someone – and we, we get it this a lot like so that, that's one of the common refrains in the immigration debate is you know like if you don't like the laws, change them. Mm-hmm. But we have to – you know we have to enforce what's on the books and, and I don't like – maybe I don't like what's on the books and I think we let, should let more people in but we got to enforce what's on the books and then once we've done that, then we can talk about reform. Um, <clears throat> and so this – like someone could say to you you know you, you signed up for this job this is this is the the law of the united states we you know our our entire system depends upon people enforcing these laws if everyone just if everyone disobeys them then it's chaos or if no one is willing to re- enforce them then they might as well not exist and so that you have you know kind of like a patriotic duty to america to to enforce her laws even if you might not agree with all of them, does that does that argument carry any weight, or like, how would you respond to that argument for you know people who are maybe similarly situated to the way that you were? Now, are you are you talking like uh, subversion, like keeping the job? And no, okay. I mean, although that's an interesting like, well, so you that, could because that... you could have you could have not quit and just used your time on the job to not catch people, or you know. Alert people or do other things to subvert it, right? Um, but that's like that's a, another Which a lot level of, of told me I should have done, yeah. Like, but um, no, I and believe me, the the thoughts crossed my mind. Like it 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 seemed it seemed like, but I also didn't want to <clears throat> end up with you know some charge against me or anything like that. Well, and that's always the issue, right? I mean, because when you're on the inside, you know, and, and I I spent a long time in government um, in the executive branch. And there is a mentality that goes along with it. Um, I can only speak for my CIA experience, but I, I don't think it's unique in that when you begin to internally rock the boat enough, then you are no longer a, quote, team player. Right, right. right. And so this is, this is when you begin to kind of get into the, the, the initial retaliatory phase. You know, you begin, maybe in your case, you'd start to get some really lousy shifts. Maybe some other things would have happened. And then over time, more than likely, it would have just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so you would have put yourself through all that kind of stuff. And kind of in the big scheme of things, it would have made it even more difficult for you and your family. And in terms of being able to at least walk away with the ability to say that, you know, you had a good record when you were a Border Patrol agent, Mm -hmm. that would have potentially been compromised. So... Did any of that kind of thing, you know, go through your mind as you were kind of weighing all this? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, but it, what, what, yeah, what it boiled down to was um, I took an oath. I took the oath seriously. And it seemed where I do believe that, you know, there are cases where subversion is necessary. And, and it's been shown that, well, obviously, the state state legalization has shown that it can change public, profi- you know, the state legalization of marijuana is obviously subverting 
you know, supposed federal power that they think they wield. And that's clearly shown to been shown to change public perception. And now we look at, you know, marijuana laws in a completely different way. And it's just a matter of time now before it, the whole thing crumbles. Right. Just like, I mean, just like citizen subversion was what, I mean, that the, the reason states started legalizing it is because everyone there was already violating right, those laws. Right. So there's a place for that. But uh, I think a private citizen doing something and um, a government agent who, you know, I I did take that that oath seriously. And um, I did, you know, whether I was tempted to kind of, uh, you know, turn my head at some point, I, I, I've told myself I wouldn't do that. And I didn't want to I didn't want to leave on those terms. Uh, to your, to your, your original question, I don't think there's any patriotic duty to, to continue for enforcing laws that you find uh, distasteful or, or immoral. Um, dr- back to the drug laws again, I would, I would love to see a flood of law enforcement personnel just quitting because they realize you know what, I'm taking fathers and mothers away from families or I'm taking children away from fathers and mothers for a substance, a substance that people can freely choose to use or not. Um, I mean, you can make arguments for different areas of policing, but the drug, the drugs is pretty cut and dry that it's a personal choice. And to take somebody, I mean, I'm, family is very, very important to me. And to take somebody away from their family for something so stupid and immigration, it comes back to that. We're breaking up families for walking across a line, for walking across some, you know, some line in the sand that we've decided is, is a, you know, a trespassing, a do not enter. Well, what I found interesting is that you were not the only person in 2018 at DHS to walk away over this particular policy. Did you ever hear of a guy by the name of Scott Shukart? No. So he was um, a fairly senior official in DHS's Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. And he had the direct responsibility for advising the chief civil rights and civil liberties officer on these very kinds of issues. And he walked away uh, pretty publicly uh, in, I believe it was the fall of, of 2018. And uh, in December 2018, he had a conversation with with some of our friends over at the Project on Government Oversight, which, as uh, our listeners may know, is one of the premier organizations representing whistleblowers. And I just want to read uh, a quick paragraph here about what he what he said to Pogo about this whole issue of, of family separation. I want to kind of get your reaction to it. This is what Scott said. What was different to me about family separation was that it was a deliberate human rights violation that senior members of the administration wanted to undertake where the fact that it was harmful to its victims was not some byproduct that better government policy could minimize, but rather where doing harm was the point. Like use of military force, the idea of separating families was to use the fact of child trauma to change their parents' behavior. I thought that was illegal, contrary to treaties and to the substantive due process prong of the Fifth Amendment, un-American and seriously wrong. When I understood that CRCL was not institutionally strong enough to make any difference even in the face of such serious civil and human rights problems, I had to think very hard about whether it was a place that I should be spending any more of my life. After the family separation issue played out a little farther, I came to feel that, while many people in CRCL do wonderful work, 
and absolutely should not feel ethically compelled to leave, that my job, working directly for the political leadership to set her agenda and implement her priorities, was not possible to do constitutionally in this administration. So I <clears throat> I sympathize with that. I it's been tough for me personally. I mean, so the child the family separation officially went into effect right after my wife had lost her job. So it was and it was a selfish decision and I've looked back and wondered if I made the right one sitting by cuz I, I I did. I when I decided I I didn't really want to do this work anymore, what I started doing was uh, volunteering for processing duties, which is kind of a crap duty. Nobody wants to do it. Um, but I volunteered for it because at least I wasn't out. You know, these people were already apprehended. I wasn't the one putting my hands on them and taking away their freedom. I was just doing the paperwork for somebody else that had done it. Um, and in my mind, you know, that, <laughs> that rationalized out somehow. But uh, so I was back in the processing area on a regular basis watching that's where the separations happen um and it was hard to watch and it was hard to not do anything about there, there's a part of me that regrets that i didn't just quit right then and and make a bigger statement out of that um but i you know i didn't i chose the uh but it, i chose self-interest yeah well but it but it's also about survival too right right and, right. and so you know, when my wife and I did our thing, it seems like a lifetime ago, it's been over 20 years ago, we had the luxury of doing it, A, because I was young and stupid um, and, and a little bit kamikaze-like maybe about the whole thing. But we also didn't have kids, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we knew that, okay, if we have to sell the house, we can do that, which we ultimately did have to do. But that's the thing about it. There are lots of, I'm convinced that there are still a lot of people inside government at multiple levels within the civil service primarily who probably have had exactly, in many cases, the same thoughts and maybe even some of the same impulses you've had. But because there is no safety net essentially to really protect people, you know, you don't have like in the State Department what's known as a dissent channel, mm -hmm. right? Where you can officially formally go and like file a protest and say, the department's policy in this area is completely wrong. We shouldn't be doing it, et cetera, et cetera. There is no safe zone, essentially, within CBP and DHS for 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 guys like your gals, like Jen Dunn and others, to mm -hmm. do that kind of thing, right? And so that, to me, is like one of the things ultimately that has to be fixed internally. You know, if we're going to be able to have any kind of sane uh, immigration policy, and we want to be able to recruit really good people and retain really good people to actually do some of the work that is necessary. We also need to give them the ability to have a voice and to be able to, to, to raise these kinds of issues to try to actually get policy changed. And mm -hmm. so that, that's why personally, you know, I wouldn't beat yourself up about that. I mean, the, the fact that you were willing ultimately to go ahead and leave and the, the fact that you've been, you know, so public for so long, for so many months now, kind of talking about this, trying to raise awareness about it. There is an enormous um, public service in that, and I'm I'm learning more uh, as I've as I've been out, and uh, I got you guys at Cato have been indispensable uh, for your work on immigration. Like I, that was my other worry was that I was going to get out and realize I'd made a huge mistake. <laughs> um, 
but um, I've I've been following your guys's research, David Beer and Alex Narasta and, and others, and I'm more convinced than ever that I that I did do the right thing. But um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I think it's thank you for giving me the the go ahead that I it was okay to stay during that that difficult time. You know, these these are. Ultimately, people who have not been through the whistleblowing experience, and that's that's essentially kind of what you were doing here. I mean, resignation process, whistleblowing. I really don't draw a lot of distinction. What's what Scott did? I don't draw a lot of distinctions there. And and the thing that I try to tell people is, becoming a person of conscience in government, <laughs> and electing to leave government because you have developed a conscience, is a very very personal decision and everybody has to you know kind of find their own way on this this is why you know i get very angry at people who you know criticize edward snowden for what he did i mean edward snowden looked at what others who came before him went through Mm -hmm. including a vicious vindictive and completely uh, unjustified attempted prosecution of a former nsa official under the espionage act Uh, and you know, these are the disincentives that are there for people in government who have a conscience, who want to try to make sure that we are doing the right thing, that our government is trying to do the right thing. But it is a very intensely personal decision. And and everybody has got a particular point at which, you know, they finally come to the conclusion that I just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And it varies for every one of us who's ultimately done anything like this. Have you heard from any of your Border Patrol colleagues since leaving? And since you became kind of public in your reasons for it? Yeah, yeah a few. Um, shortly after – so when Thad Russell interviewed me, um, I was also interviewed by Reason TV, uh, Zach Weissmuller. And that video uh, made it I – don't, I don't know how, but it made it to – there are some you know Border Patrol specific – like you have to be affiliated somehow to be a part of the Facebook group. <laughs> One day I got home from work and um, – I just got like five text messages in a row from different people. And they're like, I just saw your video. What the hell is this? What What's going on? Um, and one actually called me and he's like, hey, um, man, what what is this? I, I had no idea you, you felt this way. Um, hey, I disagree. But, uh, you know, you're, it, was, it was a pleasure working with you. I, I still like you. Um, but he wanted, he was checking on me to see if I was okay because the, the comments, um, <laughs> to the video were just so awful. He's like, man, I didn't know if you saw those, but, but I just want to make sure, you, you know, you're doing okay. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't seen them, but, uh, I can use my imagination. I know how you, I know how we, uh, we like to talk back there, but, um, so yeah, but I, the, of the people that have actually contacted me. Um, most people have said something to the, to the effect of, uh, Hey, I, I disagree, but, um, pleasure working with you. Oh, nice knowing you. Um, a couple of, you know, text chains that I used to be a part of just dried up and stopped, <laughs> stopped getting, you know, stopped getting text messages. But, uh, other than that, um, yeah, I think it, it rubbed some people the wrong way, but o- overall I haven't had a, a bad Bad reaction from my, my my former coworkers. Have you heard from anyone, either that you knew or just still in Border Patrol generally, who agrees with you or says, you know, this is kind of I wish I could do the same thing. There was one that 
emailed me and was like, didn't come out and say it, but he said something to the effect of like, yeah, I'm rooting for you or, or something, something like something that made me kind of think, well, you know, there's a, there's a seed planted there as well. But, um, and I hope he didn't do that from a U.S. government address. I hope he used his personal account. <laughs> I'll have to go look, but hopefully, hopefully. You heard from one person who might feel, might be thinking the same kind of thoughts that you were before you quit. But I imagine there, there are others mm-hmm. in, in the Border Patrol, elsewhere in, in government, um, as Patrick has talked about. So those people who might be listening who are, you know, kind of feeling the same things you were feeling stuck in this place of, you know, I, my, my principles matter to me, my moral beliefs matter to me, but at the same time, this is a job, um, changing is hard, costly. Um, also, you know, I, I took an oath or I, you know, need to support my country. Um, what, what would you say to those people now that you've experienced this, now that you've made this decision? Well, uh, it's tough because I can understand exactly why somebody would stay even if they were wrestling with that. But I would just say, you know, don't ignore it. Explore it, you know, explore it further. Um, and that, that's for, you know, Border Patrol, any law enforcement especially. I mean, if you – if it doesn't feel good to arrest somebody for some marijuana or, you know, a stupid prostitution charge or something like that, just don't ignore that. Think about it. Like think long and hard about – and maybe you don't have to quit, but maybe you can start speaking up in, you know, in your role. Um, and – yeah, I mean, take as much risk as you as you feel you can, um, but just yeah, don't ignore it. To the border patrol agents specifically, I didn't realize this when I was. I mean, this wasn't really a thought in my head when I was leaving, but after, since I'm gone, I mean, it really so loosening immigration at least for you know a, a broader work permit. Um, program would benefit them as border patrol agents immensely and here's how if there truly is some sort of threat you know these supposed rapists and murderers if those people are really there or even you know the 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 mythical terrorists that seem to be you know slipping through um if those people are really there don't you want our border patrol agents focusing on them and not wasting their time with babysitting women and children, with locking up and sending to court people who just want to come here and change tires or roof houses or whatever. I mean, I don't care if if they wanted to work in the trades or if they want to work up out of the trades. I don't care. But if – so loosening up our our restrictions benefits the Border Patrol more than they'll ever realize because then – if it's so much easier for people to come in legally, even if it's just to work, don't take residency and, and citizenship out of it. That makes their job so much more easy. And if there really is a threat, they're able to focus on that actual threat and not just sweep everybody together and paint everybody and everybody with a broad brush that, oh, you're you're a criminal. You you know, if if walking across the line meant that you're more likely to 
commit other crimes. I mean, that's like saying, well, you you sped on the highway today, so you're more likely to commit commit other crimes. You know, well, you jaywalked today, so you're you're more likely to commit other crimes. You're a danger. It's just not it's it's not good logic. Um, so yeah, I would say if you if you're thinking about something like this and you're in the border patrol, um, you know, maybe you don't have to do what I did and 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 get out. Maybe you can and start talking to maybe go into positions of leadership. I mean, I had no no interest in going into to management, um, but maybe though maybe somebody does and they can go in and, and start changing internally. Um, it's it's going to be a tough road, but um, so uh, just yeah, if if you if you're if you're having those thoughts, think about them, don't ignore them, and uh, explore them further. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.